Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club podcast. Join Eva Segalov, Craig Underhill and Hans Prennan as they chat through the latest papers. This week, Eva talks us through tumour burden and efficacy of immune checkpoint inhibitors. Hans gets stuck into aligning tumour mutational burden quantification across diagnostic platforms and Craig details the Checkmate 142 study. You'll also find out how to deliver cancer care in the wake of a cyber attack. And phew, Hans can relax. Eva tells us that coffee is still good for us. We've also the first guest in our new The Paper That Changed My Practice segment. Thanks, Merv, a.k.a. our favourite Kiwi. Yes, it's Chris Jackson. So join us for the most relaxed oncology educational podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter using hashtag OJC. As ever, you'll find links to all of the papers, bios and Twitter handles in the notes on our website. For regular news and podcast updates, subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter on oncologynews.com.au. It's free and it's a great way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Babin and this is the Oncology Podcast. G'day, g'day, g'day. What a funny world we live in. We're on the precipice here in Australia of opening up, although we've got lots and lots of sick COVID patients in hospital, and I know that's really worrying you, Craig. Yes, Eva, it is. Tell us just very briefly in the regional setting how devastating this can be. Oh, well, you know, we just have a lower capacity. We rely on constantly streaming patients to metropolitan hospitals with complex cases. And if the system in the metropolitan areas gets blocked up and we can't do that for either no beds or no transport, then we're in a bit of trouble. So, you know, COVID will expose disparity, inequity. And unfortunately, I worry that over the next few months as we open up and there's a pandemic of the unvaccinated, that it will highlight those dark inequities in regional and remote areas potentially, but also in the metropolitan underserved populations as well, which actually prior to the opening up, you know, were lagging behind in vaccine rates. Well, what's happening over there in the Northern Hemisphere? Welcome, Hans. Hi, Eva. So COVID is not a big, big deal at the moment because we have so many vaccinated people, but we're struggling now with the storm and I will explain you a little bit because we didn't used to call storms by their names eh? because, you know, they do in the U.S. But now they start doing this in Europe as well. And the rule is the first country that sees the storm can give it a name. So this time it was France that saw the storm coming and they called it Aurore. So it's with A eh? because you start with A and you go up with B, C, D, etc. So that's a new thing now here. That's actually very interesting. I don't think we would ever know that from any other reason. So if if there's no other reason, listen to OJC for amazing weather-related facts from Europe. All right, I'm going to kick off with my main paper. It's entitled Tumor Burden and Efficacy of Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors, published in Nature Review's Clinical Oncology on the 12th of October. I've always had a bit of an interest in this concept of tumour burden and how we measure it. And, you know, we're not very good at measuring it at all. So 
the paper is a lovely review. It says the concept of tumour burden is really we're trying to work out the total amount of cancer in the body and we assess it by imaging. Now we've got functional imaging as well, but there's a disconnect with traditional tumour markers and IO response. And there, out of that has been born this new hope for ctDNA as a marker of tumour burden and IO efficacy. And we back to things like LDH being important because that's more of a representative and possibly things like neutrophil lymphocyte ratio as well. So the paper says that probably there's a prognostic role of tumour burden for patients receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors. So not only are they uh, prognostic, but they may actually be predictive. So it's got a couple of really nice tables. The first table goes through the advantages and limitations of different methods of measuring tumour burden. The second looks at the relationship between image-assessed tumour burden and outcome of checkpoint inhibitors. They're mostly retrospective, some prospective studies. And Table 3 looks at liquid biopsy-assessed tumour burden. And then there's a very nice explanation of why high tumour burden might impair your immunological response. The first is a high glucose uptake and competition for glucose between tumour cells and CD8 T cells might impair the ability of the CD8 T cells to control tumour growth. The second is T cell exhaustion. So we know that lactate is the major metabolite produced by aerobic glycolysis. It's called the Warburg effect. And Craig, if you weren't in such a bad mood, I would have asked you what's the Warburg effect, but you might have just left the podcast altogether today. Uh, But high levels of lactate within the tumour microenvironment will impair the effector functions of the tumour infiltrating CD8 T cells. The third is the regulatory, the Treg cell function, and the fourth is this concept of immunosenescence. And then finally, the presence of inflammation. And so all of these things impact on how active and how competent the immune system is. It's a really lovely explanation. Uh, the conclusion is that we actually don't have any prospective data showing the benefit of combination therapies if you've got a higher tumour burden, but that would make sense. If you've got a low, relatively low tumour burden, maybe you only need monotherapy. And it also brings back this uh, concept of maybe we should be debulking by surgery or radiation or other means to improve the efficacies of immune checkpoint inhibitors in patients with a higher volume. So some lovely correlative science and the Warburg effect on the potty. Over to you, Hans. So it's quite funny you speak about tumor burden because I'm going to speak about tumor mutational burden. So it's TMB. It's completely different, of course, but you might have known about tumor mutational burden because, as you know, it's sometimes used as a biomarker for response to immune therapy. But there's a main problem with how you measure TMB. So that's why I read a paper about aligning TMB quantification across diagnostic platforms. 
And it's a publication in Annals of Oncology, October 2021. It's a study from the TMB Consortium. I didn't know it existed, but it's a group of people that came together. And the aim of this consortium was to actually facilitate harmonization and alignment across all different TMB assays. Because I have to admit, the main TMB results I see is when I see foundation reports, because I think it's also the only one that is, at least in the US, approved for this test. And TMB might help us to, to identify patients who are likely to benefit from immune therapy. But there is, as I said, there is a huge variability across these panels. Why? Because yeah, TMB is actually defined as the number of somatic mutations per megabase of interrogated genomic sequence. So the longer the genomic sequences that you look at, of course, the better result you have from your TMB. And that's why if you do whole genome or whole exome sequencing, it's, of course, better than you have only a selected smaller panel to do TMB. And also another problem is that usually the cutoff of 10 mutations per megabase is used for response to I.O., but in practice, I think 10 is not a very good cutoff. I would go higher to 14 or 16 even. We know that below 10 is not good, and somewhere between 10, 14, 16, we don't really know. And what did they do, this group? They took tumor samples and also human-derived cell lines, and they distributed this to different laboratories that did TMB, and then each used their own bioinformatics pipeline to calculate TMB and then compare it with whole exome results. So I will not go into the technical details, but they claimed that you need a panel size greater than 667 KB, I don't know why they chose that number, but it's probably something technical. And they also describe in the paper calibration tool based on some kind of reference that is derived from the TCGA. So I will not go into detail, but the conclusion is that alignment is needed between the different assays. And if some laboratory tells you, okay, the TMB is this or that, yeah, you always have to see how they calculated it, how long, the, how big the panel is, how they validated everything. But we don't use it yet in the clinics, although we have a study, some kind of basket study, where people with TMB over 16 can be included to be treated with immune therapy. So I think it will be relevant in the future, but still a lot of homework to be done, Eva. Yes, indeed. And, you know, we sort of forget about the variability in all of our tests, whether it's a CT scan or uh, we're just doing some uh, a little review of the uh, lack of utility of chromogranin A <laughs> for neuroendocrine. But, you know, these things, particularly if they're sort of a little bit unfamiliar, we want a number, TMB, it's 16, and we don't uh, really pay enough attention to the quality control for the lab that it's come from. Good paper. Now, what have you got for us? I think you are um, Dr. Underhill, is that correct? No, Eva. Mrs. Underhill? Yeah, no. Associate Professor Underhill. So does that have a nice As ring to it? Associate Professor Underhill, congratulations on your promotion. Thank you. I don't think Hans is an associate professor, is he? Actually, I am. No, you're a professor, full professor. I'm actually a full professor, but I didn't want to, yeah, 
to, to ruin the bad moment of Craig. So. <laughs> no, Craig, that's a fantastic achievement and I think a great example that you can have a regional oncology practice and, you know, have very high research and academic achievements. So well done to you. Congrats, Craig. Yeah, thank you very much. It's only an overnight success of 20 years in the making either. But, I, you know, it doesn't have any real impact on my career. But I really applied wanting to inspire others that you can do exactly that in regional practice and still have an academic track record but work in the regions because I still think there is some inherent bias in people who choose to go and work in the regions that they're somehow second best. So, yeah. So up yours is what you're saying. <laughs> I thought you got it so you could access the library and not have me download your friggin' papers for OJC. Exactly. So <laughs> I'm still working on that. Seems there's a lot of paperwork to get through the university library oh, system. Well done. So Associate Professor Craig Underhill, I call you to present your main paper, please. Thank you, Professor Eva Segaloff. I would like to present also on the theme of immunotherapy, but this time a practical paper. So this is first-line NEVO plus low-dose IPI for microsatellite instability, high or mismatch repair deficient metastatic colorectal cancer, phase two, checkmate 142. So it's only a phase two, but I think it's potentially practice changing if IPI does get approved for use in this indication. So this is... a the 142 study, first-line patients receiving Nevo plus low-dose EPI. We know that pembrolizumab in Australia has been approved for microsatellite instability, high metastatic colon cancer following progression on chemotherapy, and this is first-line patients. So phase two, the median age was 66, median follow-up was 29 months, the objective response rate and disease control rate was 69% and 84% respectively, 30% complete response rate, median duration of response not reached, 74% of responders had ongoing responses at data cutoff, median progression-free survival, overall survival not reached with a minimum follow-up of 24.2 months, and grade 3, 4 toxicity, 22% patients, 13% discontinued any grade, so a bit lower the IPI low-dose low dose IPI in NEVO than we'd see, we used to see in the other IPI-NEVO studies in, say, melanoma. So now that I am an associate professor, I know that you're not supposed to do cross-paper comparisons, but I'm going to because I've been waiting 22 years to do that in a presentation. I just had a thought. If you knew what the Warburg effect is, you might have been a full professor. But go on, go on. So if we look back to the approval of single-agent Pembro, this response rate 39%, CR rate 7%, duration of response ranged from 1.6 months to 22 months, 78% lasting six months. It does seem that the combination is more active more efficacious than the single agent. So the authors conclude that this was promising data and randomised studies are warranted 
But my question for both of you two professors as a mere associate professor and in the presence of such esteemed professors in the GI cancer space, do you think that a phase three study is doable or do you think people will launch to Ipinevo upfront if it's available? Belgian professor? So I think availability will not be the problem. It's mainly cost. So it's uh, it's a huge cost. And I, I don't think we really need phase three to know that the combination is probably better. So you see that in other tumor types as well. But whether it will be ever implemented, that I'm not 100% sure. Eva? Oh, look, I'm going to disagree on that. And, of course, we've got data from Keynote in Pembroke. You know, I think we do want to know the contribution of of the IPI, and I'll tell you why. Some of these patients get amazing responses. So they're on the treatment for a long time. In fact, we don't know how long. And I'm going to present a paper shortly that is saying how we need to do things differently when we're looking at chronic sort of low-dose or continuous therapy because, you know, our measurements, our standards are for, you know, chemotherapy, which is always supposed to be high-ish dose, shortish term, and now we've got a different paradigm. So I think it's good data, but I do think we need a phase three. I think you could, uh, you know, if you set it up properly, we are now a global society we can do things by zoom we can do things remotely we should be able to do be doing large trials in relatively rare tumors involving all the key players i think what stops us is this old system where somebody wants to be the first author of the new england paper so they just do it in their group uh, but we really could achieve much more if we had a you know a consortium that we just go to and and get the trial up and running thank you very much so anyway i think if it was available probably people would leap onto this combo but you know maybe it won't be available until we've done the phase three studies I think people will start using it. But, you know, there's lots and lots of trials around. I would really encourage people to refer for trials, lots of trials of novel IO combinations, IOs from various different companies, et cetera. How many IO-based trials have you got in your unit, hands? I think in my unit, I'm at least 30, I think. No. 30? 30? 30, zero. I should have said 29 because that's easier to pronounce than 30 for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, never say the word 30. But, you know, there's lots of trials around. So if, you know, always go for a trial option if you can. Have you got some quick bites for us, Hans? Actually, I selected two. And uh, they also relate to something I discussed before uh, because, you know, I love the Keras G12C. So I discussed already some data with Sotoracib, but also other companies now have their G12C inhibitor. And we know in lung cancer that sometimes the Keras G12C is also something that gives secondary resistance. So this paper I want to discuss very briefly is that Keras G12C mutation occurs in EGFR mutated advanced non-small cell lung cancer, progressing first line. TKI treatment. It's published in ESMO Open by a Spanish group. 
And the question they had is how many develop a Keras G12C? And why is it relevant? Because there you have treatment options, of course. But when they are treated with first-line anti-EGFR, so they looked in samples from more than 500 EGFR-positive non-small cell lung cancers, And actually, they looked into the plasma, so not uh, tissue samples, but only 1% had a Keras G12C from the patients that were resistant after anti-HFR, and they were all negative for the known uh, PT790M resistant mutation. So it means it, it is a matter of giving resistance, but a very rare one. And I think it's important that, the, that this has been published. And is there any mechanism? Why doesn't it develop under selective pressure? I don't think they know. But yeah, the question is always about clonal selection. So maybe the ones that have an EGFR mutation have very rarely a co-occurrence of very rare clones of a Keras G12C. So what's the reason there? Biologically, we don't know. Let's call it the Warburg 2 effect. Yeah. Craig. Really interesting paper, Hans. Because I must have a one percenter, so I have a lady with lung cancer who was EGFR mutated, and her escape mutation has actually been the Keras 12C, and so we've got her on a study, and she's had an amazing response. So uh, I actually emailed um, Ben in Ben Solomon in Melbourne about what to do with this lady when it happened, and. So, you know, anything's possible. You get these um, really interesting escape mutations. and um, Because I would expect that then the response would not be that long because it's a bit of selective pressure where you get the Keras gel G12C. But in your patient, it seems it is becoming the common driver then. Well, that's right. So, And she has been on the drug maybe three or four months. And so she's had a couple of scans, you know, six weekly scans. And she's having a... She's had a PR within a few months. And so maybe when she progresses, then you can restart with anti-GFR. Who knows? How much do you love OJC? We do a paper and then we actually have a patient and we can yeah, discuss it. That, yeah, is, that was completely unstaged uh, just for you members of the audience. In, because in we, fact, I didn't read the script beforehand because I didn't have time because the zombies are taking over our cancer centre. And it had a busy day. And so I was like, her hands is droning on, and I'm like going, oh, my God, I've got a patient with that. So thanks, Hans. So I actually selected the second paper. Let's see if you have a patient there as well, because this is even much more rare. It's about GIST tumors. As you know, I like it a lot because I did my PhD on GIST tumors a long time ago. And you know that the exon 9 kit mutations usually respond a bit less to Gleevec while they might respond better to sunitinib. And they looked, actually it's, it's a large group from, from different uh, GIST reference centers, they looked retrospectively, so this is important, whether the adjuvant treatment of GIST patients with the exon 9, whether they could benefit with a higher dose. But because it's retrospective, it's not randomized, so there is selection bias, But the answer to this question is that it doesn't seem that 800 milligram in the adjuvant setting is better than, than 400 milligrams. So until there are more data, especially in the adjuvant setting, we still stick, even for the Exxon 9's kit mutations, to 400 milligram. How common is the Exxon 9 as a proportion of GIST tons? 
Well, Exxon 9 is not unfrequent, eh? but the Exxon 11s are more frequent. Exxon 9, I don't know the absolute number, but it's, it's still not unfrequent. Let's say maybe 15, 20%. The complicated area just now, isn't it? Getting more complicated and more. So it's, it shows the importance of, again, A, being involved in the trials and B, discussing these patients in multidisciplinary meetings. And listening to the OJC. Exactly. All right. I've got one, a short bite, that you might have a patient for. It's called radiation-induced skin reactions during and following radiotherapy, a systematic review of interventions, published in the journal Radiography. Now, why did I pick this? Well, the senior author is our very good friend Heidi Probst from the UK. And if you didn't hear our oncologists who have cancer special, Heidi, as a a professor of radiation therapy, told her story, her own personal story, and it was uh, really amazing. But here she is, senior author, looking at this very important supportive care field, really showing that prophylactic use of steroid cream is the most efficacious in reducing acute skin reactions, but really saying there's very little good comparative research in this area. So my second short bite is also something that many people in Melbourne will be aware of and uh, in Victoria, I I should say. But the paper comes from the US and published in JCO Oncology Practice and it's called Cancer Care in the Wake of a Cyber Attack, How to Prepare and What to Expect. Now, you would think this is a crazy topic, but in fact, here in Melbourne, Box Hill Hospital had a um, cyber attack and so did Latrobe. Regional and uh, this paper describes an attack in October 2020 of ransomware on the University of Vermont Health Network, and it was this attack was rated as the worst one on a health facility in the US for 2020, and they basically described that everything went out: emails, the EMR, the electronic chemotherapy, all their protocols and it describes you know what they did and how how they uh, had to sort of scramble and and deal with this and look it's a bit like the COVID uh, plans that we should all have they should be on the shelf and we should be able to take it down if this yeah, happens yeah, yeah sure I remember going to the first meeting about our pandemic plan uh, in March last year, February, March, and I said, oh, can we just take the influenza plan and change it to COVID and go from there? And so we don't have an influenza pandemic plan. So I don't think many hospitals would have a cyber attack plan. Maybe IT departments do, but. But department directors should know because an IT department isn't going to be able to tell you without your input what you should do if you have lost every, you know, no access to anyone's chemotherapy plans, et cetera. And, you know, patients should have their own plan with them on a on a stick or somehow. I mean, we're just too dependent um, unless you don't have an electronic 
chemo prescribing <laughs> <It's plan easy>. system <laughs> like us and then you'd, you'd be a piece of cake. you just go and to the filing cabinet and get out the old file. So, you know, I've, I've looked at this paper and thought, oh, what a joke. I was, But it's actually really serious and we need to plan for contingencies. What if there was a widespread cyber attack and everything was down, though? What's your plan then? Just make sure your cellar's stocked with enough wine to last you through the crisis or? Well, the the patients still needed to be treated. So they they talked about things like transferring patients. And again, if that was already set up, whether it's a cyber attack, a COVID or whatever, you know, I, I ring you up and say, hey, Craig, code purple and green with yellow spots and off the patients come to you. Hang on, I'll just download the plan off the server. (laughs) But we we don't have enough contingencies. So it's an interesting paper. And your quick bites. Oh, yeah, my quick bites are quick. So uh, like you, I did a a review and one was the value of neoadjuvant radiation therapy in the management of pancreatic adenocarcinoma in the JCO. So, you know, this is quite a confusing area. And so I thought, oh, this would be interesting. I read this guidelines and review and it'll all be clear. Well, it's not. So they basically concluded that the role of radiation is not is not clear. But for people who are radiation oncologists or GI oncologists, I think this is an interesting paper. They said going forward, they suggest a robust neoadjuvant study would ideally compare preoperative chemotherapy alone versus preoperative chemoradiotherapy, followed by chemoradiotherapy or hypofractionated radiotherapy or SABA, and incorporate clear criteria for resectability, assessment of interoperative margins, and central review of all postoperative imaging for accurate assessment patterns of recurrence. So. Anyway, they said, so they, their conclusion was we need a good trial and this is what they suggest. So it's not for lack of trying. There's been heaps of trials. And every time a trial is negative, they say, oh, it was the wrong total dose. It was the wrong fraction. It was the wrong area. It was the wrong technique. It was the wrong patient population. <laughs> you could have written this paper, I think, Eva. It's the gift that keeps on giving. You can just, you know, try again. Hans, you're nodding there. I was actually going to say the same because this radiotherapy story, we've done all the trial. Let's stick to the plan that radiotherapy is not working really well in pancreatic cancer. Now, just to point out too, this was an international review and an international group of authors, and it did include an author from Australia, Andrew Orr from the Gold Coast University Hospital. So congratulations, Andrew. I hope you're on Twitter and we'll... Thank you. And we should then plug Master Plan, which is the AGITG study. Uh, and Andrew Orr is the principal investigator. Oh, fantastic. So tell, what's the design of that, Eva? Do you recall off the top of your head? So that's putting on the spot. That's even that's an unfair, unfair question even for a professor, I think. So, Eva, do you have some kind of amazing article which you want to discuss? Well, Hans, 
Do you know, every day I get up and I have a cup of coffee and I think of you because by that time you're on your 10th cup of coffee. So I watch the coffee literature pretty carefully because I'm, I'm concerned for your welfare. So this is a paper in Clinical Hepatology and Gastroenterology published on October the 5th this year entitled Coffee Consumption is Associated with Lower Liver Stiffness, a Nationally Representative Study. And we know that coffee is associated with a reduced risk of liver disease, but there's lots of confounders. So they wanted to see, is this really true? So they had 510 people who underwent transient elastography and two lots of 24-hour dietary recall. And they used people who had decaf coffee or tea as controls. Very interesting. The study sample described median age was 48 years, 73% were overweight or obese, 10% had diabetes. And anyway, what they found is coffee is associated with lower liver stiffness, but not steatosis in adults in the United States. Very interesting. So it also up. protects, yeah? yeah, it protects against colon cancer, we think. Uh, so it has a lot of advantages. Fantastic. And Eva, did you have a Twitter account of the week? You normally do. Look, I do. You know, I don't know if people can still go on this, but this was the Twitter account of a woman called Nadia Chowdhury, who was a Montreal neuroscientist who documented her progress with advanced ovarian cancer. Uh, and she became a sort of a Twitter superstar and would post really beautiful and touching uh, tweets right through almost to the day she died in the hospice. And her goal was to raise awareness about ovarian cancer and she called her family the sun and the moon. She had a little son and a husband, and then right near the end, the university made her a full professor, and every time you read this, Twitter uh, would bring would bring tears to your eyes, and she ended up with an enormous amount of Twitter followers, and then once she died, which was a couple of weeks ago now, a huge number of people posted uh, to describe the impact of her Twitter account. So very sad. The whole university uh, flew its flag at half-mast in her honour. That is the huge amount of impact that she had. Fantastic. All right. All right. So it's been a very varied and fun OJC, a bit sad at the end, but now it's time for Hans to go and have coffee number... Four, only four today. Coffee number four, and it's time for Craig to go and shoo out the zombies from the cancer centre at the same time as uh, <laughs> drinking some champagne. It would be nice, wouldn't it? And this is our first podcast where we're going to feature the paper that changed my practice. 
Now, some people have interpreted this as the paper that changed my life. It doesn't have to be that dramatic. But honestly, if you want to become an OJC Potty star, just get in contact with us and we'll interview you for this section. So we were waiting and waiting for people to volunteer and then we got a phone call and guess who it was? Here he is, the paper that changed my practice, Merv. G'day, Merv. Kia ora, Eva. Kia here, queer. That yes. means how are you? Yes. Yes. No, you, you New Zealanders are so cultural or Aratoans are so culturally aware. It's excellent. How have you been, Merv? Oh, look, things have been a bit up and down over here in New Zealand. We've been in a lockdown and uh, just the other day we've started to come out of the lockdown, but Delta's sort of thinking around the place a bit now, isn't it? It feels like we're racing a runaway train uh, right now. Um, yeah. And, uh, of course, everyone's raced to get vaccinated. We went all in on a Pfizer-only strategy in New Zealand, so only one type of vaccine, which meant we're a bit slower out of the blocks. Get that, but obviously for good reason. And now I think it's really going to test us. So whilst New Zealand's been relatively spared for the last 18 months, it's going to start soon, I think. So the paper you're presenting is not about how New Zealand stove off uh, COVID, published in the New England Journal last year? Well, we got one in Lancer instead, actually, around what happened to cancer in New Zealand and what happened to cancer death rates in New Zealand. And one of the interesting things in New Zealand was that in 2020, the death rate overall was down by 550 people. So New Zealand actually experienced a lower death rate last year. We did see a reduction in the diagnosis of lung cancers. We saw a reduction in the diagnosis of blood cancers. Uh, We saw a reduction in the diagnosis of bowel cancer for about four to six weeks while they stopped doing all the screening colonoscopies. But we caught up within two months, so actually cancer diagnoses were not affected at all uh, during 2020 to any great extent with the lockdown. So we were one of the few countries that escaped well because of that very aggressive lockdown strategy. Wow. Okay, so CJ, I'm trying to guess what paper yours might be. It'll be something maybe we're not expecting. Tell us about it. Well, you know, everyone knows that New Zealand is pretty far behind the eight ball when it comes to uh, drug availability, so it would be pretty off-key for a Kiwi to turn up and say, the availability of this drug changed my practice, when in actual fact all it would be would be that the availability of this drug simply caught us up with the rest of the world, so that would be the New Zealand story. No, I want to tell you a slightly different story. Uh, I've been reading, okay, so um, no Pembro, no no Pembro, right? Oh, come on. We've no got Pembro, Pembro for melanoma. Okay, go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> Pembro for melanoma did change my life, but maybe that's a half-hour segment, not a five-minute one. Um, so, no, I think for, for me, the paper that changed my life was the paper that compared percutaneous intervention and acute myocardial infarction with thrombolysis. And the reason for that... <laughs> I love it. I was expecting a cancer paper, but uh, okay, go on. Well, you see, what happened was I was a trainee. I had an amazing mentor in cardiology who had done everything in cardiology you could ever hope to do. She was an amazing woman. The med students used to describe her as the Margaret Thatcher of internal medicine. She was so terrifying. She kept the cardiothoracic surgeons under her thumb. They were so well behaved around her. She was a very, very impressive woman, an intellectual giant, Eva. 
uh, a very impressive woman and a very inspirational. I wanted to do cardiology so I could follow in her footsteps and diagnose anything just by listening to someone's precordium, just checking the complete vibration of the thrill to work out if it was mitral or tricuspid regurgitation. It was that level of precision. It was fantastic. I work in a town where we only had three cardiologists at the time, so I knew I was going to get on the on-call roster as a senior, then it would be one in four on-call, and everyone had to do intervention. That was all right. In cardiology in those days, it was only aspirin and a little bit of streptokinase. That was okay. But then, the paper that changed my life, what happened was that some Americans looked at PCI versus thrombolysis and found out that PCI was superior. And at that moment, it dawned on me that the rest of my life as a cardiologist would be getting up at 6 a.m. That was it. Or 2 a.m. <laughs> well, you get the morning cortisol surge, don't you? So my cardio infarcts always go up. So that was it. I was going to be doomed forever to 6 a.m. rising. and There's no way I was going to do that. I was out. And then the door was open and I was into oncology. So after that, that really was the paper that changed my life. I think it's interesting, particularly at the moment, I've been reading this great book by an American psychologist called Adam Grant, which if you haven't read it, you really should. It's called Think Again. Um, and he talks about the whole concept of identity foreclosure and that we get caught up in this idea of our careers defining ourselves and we get caught up in our jobs and stuff and we forget about what really drew us into it, which was our principles and the value and the purpose. And if you take one step back from that, from your identity as an oncologist or as a GI oncologist or whatever, and you think about why am I doing it, and you get back to those principles, that's really recentering. In a time where there's extraordinary amounts of burnout in oncology at the moment, there's extraordinary pressure in oncology at the moment, just spending some time to reconnect with why you got to this, especially in the first place, has been really helpful for me to reflect on. CJ, I thought you might talk about sunitinib 25 versus 50 milligrams, but you've really been uh, outstanding once again, really giving us stuff to think about. And uh, yeah, you're right. It was the paper that, that changed your life. So thank you very much. See you soon. Come back anytime for another chat on OJC. Keep up the great work on OJC, Eva. I listen to it all the time from my spa pool. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank goodness another OJC is over and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.